We're, we're, we're devolving quickly here. <laughs> That's but what we do. What can yeah. I say? Welcome once again to the Free Associations podcast from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone as confused by the latest health study as I am by the process to enroll your children for summer camp what? starting in December and January oh, of wait, the year you, before. You waited till December? Yes. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about this because your children are older, so you obviously have a little more experience. October. So my um, so my my parents for years and years and years have uh, every every Labor Day they go to the same hotel in Agunquit, Maine, Aww. and and when they leave they book again for the next year. And I think that's the way you have to deal with summer just camps. Just on the way out, like the on last the way, just out, on the way out. Just put your deposit down. Just give your deposit. Because otherwise, right. it you'll you'll never you'll never get in. Crazy. Yeah. Your daughter's too young. Too young. Too young for this sort of situation. Right. Yes. Well, something to look forward to, and we'll give you the tips. Thank you. Like when they say that registration opens at 9 a.m., as I experienced this morning, by 9.03, the whole summer is full with the exception of two weeks. So most, most, most people write a computer script that actually- Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, they don't. I was going to say, should I get started? They, they should I out, pulling out, out my eight, the night I'm just going to work on this for the next yeah. eight years. Yeah, and then exactly. I've had some time exactly. so I can perfect the no, algorithm. No, but it is, it, is, it is a maddening thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, remember the, like, the date? Well, I mean, once upon a time, if you wanted to get like tickets to something that were really hard to get, you had to camp out. Mm-hmm. There, right. It still happens some places, but most of the time you just have to have, like, like t- buying tickets to a a concert now or a professional sports event, I think is, this has become like absurd in that they all get purchased immediately and then resold. Mm-hmm. So it's like people buy them as an investment effectively and just drive up the price. So you cannot go see any sporting event that people really are, are interested in without paying huge amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you, do you think though that like summer camp, which is maybe is glorified childcare like falls in that circumstance. Like I feel like, you know, you have like Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then you have like day camp and it's just amazing to me the intensity because there also seems to be like a lot of day camps and like a lot of them I think are pretty good, but apparently there's some hierarchy of quality that, and also I think it's also just the intensity of the community. If you don't get into the right Right. summer camp, you can write off your kid's future. Yeah, exactly. There's no point. Exactly. I think it's indicative of the larger issue that we have right now around accessibility of childcare. It's a bigger problem. I agree. I agree. I agree. Anyway, goodness gracious. I'm Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined again by my friend, Dr. Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. Welcome, Matt. Good to be here. Good to not be hosting. Very good. And we also have joining us today, Dr. Amruta Nori Sarma from the Department of Environmental Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, a returning guest host. And we're so happy to have her with us. Welcome, Amruta. Thank you so much for having me back. Now on to the show. Today in our first segment, our Journal Club segment, we're going to take a look at a study focused on the effect of a workplace intervention on cardiometabolic risk. In the second part of the podcast, our deep dive segment, we'll talk about mental health as a human right. And in our famous, amazing and amusing segment, we'll jump into some things that have made us laugh out loud or we otherwise just found fascinating in the last few weeks. 
So into segment one, we're getting into an article that looked at a specific workplace intervention and the relationship between this intervention for workers across different industries on cardiometabolic health. It was published in the American Journal of Public Health, and the study was titled Employee Cardiometabolic Risk Following a Cluster Randomized Workplace Intervention from the Work, Family, and Health Network 2009 to 2013 by first author Lisa Berkman of the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies in Cambridge. There were a number of headlines that came out on this study. First one being from the MSN Network, Harvard study finds having flexible working hours good for your heart. From Science Mag, increasing workplace flexibility associated with lower risk of cardiometabolic stress. New study shows increasing workplace flexibility might lower cardiovascular disease. This comes from WHD-TV. Is that one of our local TV stations? I believe it is. I believe oh, it is. H-D-H-D-H? H- W-H-D-H? No. H-D-H is local. It's I don't local. know. It's local. It's like yeah. Yeah, the old Channel 7. Yeah. And one from usnews.com, people's heart health improves in more, quote unquote, flexible workplaces. So Matt, let's get started by asking you to describe this study and what they found. Can do. Okay, so I think we are converging a little bit on a theme here in that the last segment that we, sorry, the second segment that we did last time was about mental health. This is an intervention designed around mental health in its relation to physical health in the workplace. And then we're going to talk about mental health in the second segment. So I feel like things are kind of converging. So Work is an important determinant of of health and well-being. Much of our lives are spent at work, and therefore it determines many of the things that we are exposed to, our mental health, our physical health. And it's it's also shown to be central in shaping inequalities in health. So the the distribution of health differs depending on whether or not you're employed and then where you're employed. So this study comes uh, against the backdrop of, of concerns that people have about the challenges that people are having with with work and the conflict that it creates between work-life balance in the United States, particularly as as work demands are increasing. And this was a number that was was talked about in the in the introduction that they said about 70% of US workers report some interference between work and non-work. I don't know specifically what that means, but I think you know we can all relate to the idea that that work infringes upon life, creates challenges for us. Working long hours means we have to find ways to take care of kids and things like that. So there's, you know, there's a lot of challenges. So these authors felt that given that, they wanted to think about workplace redesigns that could potentially reduce the stress of workplaces and then potentially have an impact on measures of, of physical health. Now, one of the, the key thing, uh, organizational conditions that shapes workplace risk is the ability to go to work without creating undue hardship and strain on family responsibilities. And this gets to the work uh, family conflict. So, and it's also worth noting there, there are these biologic mechanisms that have been linked to work stress and cardiovascular disease. The, the ones that you would probably think of, like inflammation and cardiovascular reactivity, arth- arthrosclerosis, things like that. So things that are all sort of artifacts of, of coming to work. So what they wanted to do was design a workplace intervention that would potentially address some of these issues. They designed this intervention that was, they tested in a cluster randomized trial. It was designed to increase family supportive supervisor behavior and employee control over work time. And so what they did was they designed this this intervention in which they gave supervisors training focused on increasing supportive work family behaviors, and they 
did these work redesign activities aim to modify practices and interactions in workplaces between employees and their supervisors, specifically focused on increasing employees' control over work time and supervisor awareness and support of work-family balance? So, you know, I think there's some questions there as to whether this could be done in, in all industries, in all, you know, uh, workplaces, but in the ones that they were working with, they, they clearly could do this. Then, so then they, they tested this with a, a randomized trial, cluster randomized trial, at two companies uh, with multiple different work sites. The two workplaces were long-term care facilities and multiple work units in, in the IT sector, both in the United States. And so then they randomly assigned these work sites within the companies so that you now have a clustered intervention. So it's not an individually randomized. Either your your workplace is, is assigned to the intervention or not, because obviously this is a group-level intervention. They have these, these trainings where teams identified new work practices to increase employee control over work time and to try and reduce low-value tasks. Again, not clear whether this could be done everywhere, but certainly where it could be has the potential to increase people's happiness. So they they run this intervention and then they wanted to test it against the primary outcome of a change in a validated cardiometabolic risk score or the CRS, which is calculated using various different things that you would think of that, you know, they check when you go to the doctor, like your blood pressure, your BMI, your cholesterol levels, things like that. They had follow-up assessments that included in-person interviews and they did biomarker collection. They collected these measures at baseline. They do the intervention, then they collected them again at 12 months and they looked to see what the the change was. They also did some self-reported measures with a computer-assisted interview, but largely were focused here on the, the specimens. This was done from September of 2009 to July of 2011. They did some fancy regression models to deal with some of the between-group differences. When it's a cluster randomized trial, you don't necessarily get the same kind of balance that you would get in an individually randomized trial. And Worth noting, one thing that they did was they pre-specified, and I think this is important, that they would stratify the results by baseline cardiovascular scores. In other words, they would stratify by whether or not people were at high risk for cardiovascular events or low risk for cardiovascular events. And then they they tested the effect of the intervention on their 10-year cardiovascular risk score, that score that I was mentioned in the beginning. They did have a, a fair bit of attrition, so it's I, I couldn't get the exact number. It seemed to be in the neighborhood of 60%, though it didn't differ between between groups. And so then they get their results and they found no no real difference. Uh, you could say there was a slight difference in the effect of the, the intervention on CRS scores overall. However, what was noteworthy was they did find a difference in the group that was at high risk for cardiovascular disease. And, you know, that sort of makes sense in a way, right? If you are at low risk for cardiovascular disease, you might not expect much of a change, but if you're at higher risk, then interventions might potentially work. Hard to know what to make of the the specific numbers here because these are changes in scores. So I won't I won't give you the the details, but overall the results suggest that this is, you know, an intervention, at least for those who are at high risk of cardiovascular events, might have some benefit. You know, we can talk about whether or not the 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 costs that an intervention like this might have are worth the benefits and whether we think the benefits are big enough. But overall, you know, a, a, a positive finding from what I thought was a reasonably well-designed and well-implemented study. Thanks, Matt. That's really interesting. Thank you for giving us that overview. Amrita, I'll turn to you. What were your key takeaways or the key things that jumped out to you from this paper? Yeah, so I thought this was really interesting. And one of the things that I think is worth highlighting, which, you know, comes across in 
even in the title, is that this is all work that was done looking at workplace flexibility pre-COVID. And I think that Mm. it has meaningful implications for the way that we think about the changes to the structure of the workplace during and post-COVID and the potential long-term impacts that this might have on both physical health outcomes as well as mental health outcomes, thinking through the theme that we have for today's episode around mental health. I know that there was a lot of discussion you know, during COVID and during, you know, work from home period and then in the hybrid work from home, work from office model. And a lot of that was focused around how we provide care. You know, we talked about childcare in the beginning, but I think it's not just childcare. It's also about the way that we provide elder care. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the thing that the reason why I thought this was a really interesting study is because it brings together and sits at the intersection of a lot of these different issues that I've been thinking about. And I think a lot of my colleagues have been thinking about, you know, what does hybrid work or work from home look like in post COVID era? And then also how do we take into consideration the additional stressors for people who are working in office of child care, of elder care? And, you know, where is that balance that we need to strike between, you know, flexibility in the workplace, but also uh, making sure that people have access to the resources that they could potentially get from a a work in office model. And, you know, this is very clearly something that people were thinking about and looking at 10 years before, you know, where we are currently sitting post-COVID. It's interesting. I hadn't hadn't really thought about the the fact that this was pre-COVID, and of course, so much has changed in workplaces with COVID and then post-COVID, not, not that we're post-COVID, but you know what I mean, in terms of the emergency phase, I hadn't really thought about the, the, the implications. I mean, so, so I'm curious, do you think this, this actually tells us more because work has actually changed to become more flexible or that the results actually are, are less generalizable because so much else has just changed during COVID that maybe, you know, every workplace is now just sort of very different. I, I'm wondering what you think. Yeah, I think I think it might be the case that we we need to reinvestigate some of these interventions that we're implementing now. And we might also, you know, one of the things that they did in this study is they looked at baseline cardiovascular risk scores and they one of the major measures that they're using is what is your 10-year likelihood of a cardiovascular event. And now we are 10 years post the original data collection. So I think one of the things that would be really interesting would be to follow up with those folks who participated in the study to see how much of the cardiovascular risk score actually translated into an outcome. And also if we could look at that measure potentially mediated by the changes in workplace structure, especially that were happening in long-term care facilities during the COVID period, right? This is one of the epicenters of a lot of the changes in the initial workplace structure because of the nature of the pandemic and how it was really concentrated in these long-term care facilities. So I think there's a really interesting potential, you know, we have data from 10 years ago, pre-COVID, and now we could start to look at some of the same folks working in these places of interest. I had actually assumed that in part that was that was what this paper was setting yeah. the stage for because it is 10 years right now. They didn't actually present health outcomes in their study participants. Mm-hmm. They just presented the risk score and kind of dangled in front of us yeah. the 10 year risk. But then, and so my sense is that maybe, maybe that's why they were looking at this now because they were intending to go back and look at these different workplaces. And you're right. What was interesting about the two workplaces that they chose is that they were ones that looking at them now, 10 years later, were particularly affected by 
the by kind of COVID work reshuffling where there was, we were talking about long-term care and for sure. And then the IT sector also, you know, was deeply affected in terms of the remote work situation, you know, in terms of people being able to work in a long-term remote capacity. So the office setting in that industry has changed fundamentally. So th this is one of those experiences where you miss, you like you don't miss it, but you don't pay attention to one detail and then it completely shifts everything. So first of all, I, I think it's worth clarifying two things that I probably didn't, didn't either say or stress. One is that this was a large study. It was 5,000, they randomized 5,000 mm -hmm. people in each industry. So 10,000 people. So, you, you know, you've you got a, a big, big population. But these were the other thing is so these were they they their primary outcome was these ten year risk scores, mm -hmm. just worth highlighting for the audience that that does not mean that was their risk over ten years they mm -hmm. were not followed for ten right. years yeah. that's a score that is pre a predicted a predictive how score likely yeah. you right. are. that was derived from Framingham as, yeah. right. as a predictive yep. score and then they applied it on this data from two thousand and nine to two thousand thirteen so why are we just now getting results from a study that w was from 2013. Amazing that I missed it, by the way, since it's in the title, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw it, but I didn't really pay attention to in it. In your defense, the title's super long. That's, right. That's, how you feel about that. And the yeah. dates are all the way at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my assumption is that this is a currently active cohort mm -hmm. and where they yep. may potentially be continuing to collect follow-on data from the same cohort. And I would assume that there's something interesting to be done with the follow-up information that has been obtained from this cohort over the course of the 10 years between the original data collection and COVID period. And it seems to make sense given that they were doing predicted risk scores as part of their main measure, you know, of effect looking at the, the per original participation. I would assume that there would be something to look at, including how many of the participants actually experienced adverse cardiovascular outcomes in mm -hmm. the intermediate 10 years, potentially looking at the ways in which during COVID workplace flexibility mimicked the original intervention and yeah. how that might have had implications for health for the participants 10 years after the original data collection. And one of the things that, you know, is a key component of this is that long-term care facilities experience some of the most dramatic increases in adverse health outcomes among the patients as a result of the COVID pandemic and was also a place where workplace flexibility really like originated in meaning during the pandemic. And so I think they have a really rich potential set of participants who were in the original study who could potentially be looked at now, given the context that the pandemic kind of provided us around workplace flexibility. Yeah. A lot of challenges there though, of course, mm -hmm. because the, you're right that, that the, the conditions, work conditions in some ways did mimic what was done in this study during COVID time, but COVID was also itself a really stressful right. time mm -hmm. that you might think that might've changed, you know, risk for the worse as mm -hmm. well. So it would be hard to tease that up, but really an interesting opportunity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was wondering if either of the, t I struggled myself to actually find what the intervention was. Mm -hmm. uh, where I, for some reason, I wasn't able to find the active links in the paper to the supplements. Cause I was like, what they talked about it, but yep. they were, I, I wanted to know like, what actually were they doing? Yep. And so I ended up just Googling the study and then on the, in, you know, on the study website, they have PowerPoints that are some, some at least, and I think some of it's proprietary, mm -hmm. some of it's proprietary in this, like in an intervention space yep. that I think yep. looks like companies can purchase yep. this, this intervention. And then others of it were publicly available. 
And it was really interesting because for the IT sector, it was very focused on kind of breaking down the constructs of the nine to five workday and saying, what if at two o'clock you could go do, you could go watch a movie, you could go to the movies and then do the work that you had to do at 10 p.m. And all that mattered was, could you get your work done? It didn't matter when you did it. And so much of that actually came true during the pandemic yeah. where we were all at home and you had, you know, for mm -hmm. some of us, you had your children running around or you were just, you know, there was lots of stuff going on mm -hmm. and it, and that, and like the whole work day kind of disappeared almost in the way that they mm -hmm. were envisioning in this intervention. And you were working all night, you were working all day, mm -hmm. you were, you know, you were up in the night. It was like the, the like day became night and night became day and it became very confusing from a, a, a workplace. And there was all these other external pressures also. So it wasn't just work, but it also led me to think that some of the fundamentals of the intervention had to be changed. And so I wondered if that's why, because, you know, the things that they're proposing now, many of these things already exist, at least mm -hmm. in the IT sector, which has become very remote heavy or hybrid mm -hmm. heavy, a very limited kind of fully in-person workforce, which is different from the long-term right. care sector. Yeah. The interventions they were proposing at this time in the 2009 period for the long-term care sector were focused on the workers identifying extraneous or useless things that they were being asked to do and trying to empower them to alert their supervisors like where they're wasting time, mm -hmm. basically, to say, I'm doing this activity, but it doesn't seem to be contributing anything useful, or I'm doing it, and then this other person's also doing it, mm -hmm. or we're doing it at the wrong time of the day. So to kind of try to to try to use that knowledge from the workers to inform the effectiveness, the kind of day-to-day -day efficiency right. of the work environment, because they don't, you, you can't, some of those tasks, you know, it's not, they're not flexible in that way. Like things have to mm -hmm. be done at certain times in certain orders with certain patients. So that's, that was an area where it seemed that it's still, the intervention still could work now yep. yeah. in, yep. in COVID, yeah. but the one with IT was very different. And so it was not easy to actually get my hands on what exactly they mm -hmm. were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I imagine that that maybe that was a motivation too, is that they have to revamp at least one of the interventions mm -hmm. in this new context. And they were sure. trying to do like a pre-post. Yeah. Yeah, um, but it was re it was it was very interesting to see the content of what they were actually sharing with the workers, and then also to see you know they talk about it in the article, but how many of the individual workers did not attend the sessions, mm -hmm. and so thinking through like you know what could be the effect on their ultimate estimates if you had work groups where sixty percent of the people in that work group, for example, were not at the session where they were presenting this information. Yeah, although, I mean, it is a group level right. intervention yeah. and it is possible that you have an intervention that even if, you know, some people or many people don't attend, the benefits still accrue right. to yeah. those. Right. Uh, so it's a possibility. I, I was wondering, you know, it makes sense to me in some ways that this comes out of a, a, a school of, of public health, but like there's part of me that thinks like, why isn't this kind of thing coming out of a school of, of you know, business school or, you know, uh, I don't know, somewhere else. Obviously, it does make sense to think about workplace interventions and, and mental and physical health. But if these interventions are, say, good at improving people's uh, happiness and they don't necessarily improve their health, wouldn't we also think that was a still think that was a good idea mm -hmm. uh, and something that might right. you know help companies retain employees, keep them happier, whatever it is, be more productive? I don't know. So I, I you know, there's a part of me that thinks like, I don't know if it's if it's if these are beneficial interventions, even if they didn't improve health, we would still care, right? I, so I don't yeah. know. I mean, it seems like there's so many other outcomes that you might be curious about the effects of this intervention on. I don't know. I'm just 
One of the reasons, no, I mean, I agree with you. And I think one of the reasons, again, we were going back to why was this published now in AGPH. And I think one of the reasons is that among the participants who had these higher risk scores, the effect was substantial. Yeah. And so, and, so, right. that, and so that was attention time, grabbing. That was attention yeah. grabbing. I have a hard time yeah. interpreting these numbers because it's a risk score. I so only what is interpreted, a drop and a risk score they, they interpret it towards yeah, the end did. where they, they say did. it's the equivalent of five to 10 years of... Of, of, of age in the cardiometabolic risk space, whatever exactly that means, but kind of saying maybe if you're a 40 year old person, you're, you're, you're not aging at this, you know, you're kind of aging to a, a different level or aging at a different you, pace. You have the heart of a 35 year old. Right. If for the, you know, and so, and that was pretty substantial, I think in the mm-hmm. cardiovascular epi space, those findings, even though there are assorted limitations. So I think that could also have been part of the reason why it was published here and published now because because yeah. of the dramatic effect and, and the implication that could this be stemming from the natural right. experiment of hybrid work or remote work? Could we be seeing some of these benefits now? Although, right. as you said earlier, they'd definitely be offset by some of the other pressures imposed by the pandemic. Right. I agree. And I think that cardiovascular disease risk being as high as it is, those are meaningful impacts right. that we're seeing from the other areas that I'm more familiar with, like the air pollution literature, these types of changes in cardiovascular disease risk would be really meaningful. So the fact that they're able to see that with an intervention like this, I think is really an important finding, particularly among people who have that elevated risk at baseline. So the, so the risk score itself is, is largely made up of systolic blood pressure, BMI, hemoglobin, HbA1c, tobacco consumption, HDL, high density lipoprotein, and total cholesterol. So I'm just trying to think through what, what are the most likely impacts, like is this presumably bringing down people's blood pressure mostly. I would think that I, I don't know this, to, I don't know the field well enough, but I would think the biggest thing you could do to improve your heart health would be to quit smoking. And mm-hmm. this doesn't seem to be focused in any way on getting people to quit smoking. So I can't imagine it's that, but, but maybe it is. I, I, I'm just, I'd be curious to know the individual components and what we think that this is actually impacting. And then the second thing would be, I, I'm curious to your thoughts on how transportable this intervention is. I mean, when, when, you know, you do drug studies, you get an effect and it's not the same in every population, but it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's reasonably transportable across populations, but Mm -hmm. interventions like this are going to be very specific to the, to the, both the sector that you're in, but also the company that you're in. And the, given that we now know that the intervention benefit is in those who are at highest risk, it's also going to depend on the proportion of your population that is at high risk to begin with. So, Mm -hmm. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. My concern in seeing the intervention, the content of the intervention, that it obviously required a substantial investment and motivation from the employer, mm-hmm. right? To kind of say, we're breaking down the workday totally. And unlike before where we had, you know, one of the things was that meetings are now optional, mm-hmm. Right. If you don't feel like there's a benefit, you're 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 into this, you're into this. Right. But the obviously the employer has to buy into the whole construct of breaking down the nine to five work week. And and many employers, I think, would not do that, even if they've leaned into some of the flexibility of remote or hybrid work. I think just still just still, you know, meetings or, you know, the meetings, the meeting flexibility or a a lot of these things that you don't have to work along a traditional line. Yeah. So, I so think it would, my, would be difficult. Would be make it. It would make it difficult to transport across yeah. across yeah. industries. At least the IT version, the long term yeah. care version, that was more focused on the workers alerting their supervisors 
to efficiency problems probably could be carried more broadly into different industries. Yeah. And I think that this maybe gets into a whole other area, but focusing in on that long-term care component, I think that in addition to requiring the buy-in from the employers, it also requires buy-in from supervisors to say like, we're going to take these trainings, we're going to take them seriously, we're going to implement those best practices that are that are provided for us. And I think that that's also an investment. And, you know, they talked a little bit about the number of hours that are required for these trainings and it's not trivial. No, it's a lot of time. They're, they're extensive. Yeah. And I think in other literature, there's been demonstrations of the need for repeated trainings in order to retain the information that's being provided in Mm -hmm. occupational settings. But, you know, going back to your earlier question about business school versus, you know, coming out of a school of public health, I do think that this is, you know, occupational risk factors is a really big component of public health literature. And I think it's really important to include. So, I mean, I, I think it is, I think it is where it belongs. No, 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 no. Sorry. I, uh, I, I said that poorly. I guess my question was, if you think about the investment that this is going to yeah. take, the, the, what, what if I'm an employer, mm-hmm. do I necessarily care that my, my employees cardiovascular risk score is going down? Maybe I do. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would hope I do, but right. it's probably not my main motivator. Whereas if I found that it improved my employee retention and improved productivity, then I might be more interested in investing in it. So I'm just, I'm just right. sort of trying to balance those two things. Yeah. Of how do you get people to want to implement something that might actually have benefits for health? Yeah. by also relating it to things that they care about. And right. it also wasn't clear to me that the effects that they were seeing were due to stress reduction right. rather than people using their time differently. Yeah. So, right, like all if all you know, maybe you could free up time in your day to, to go to the gym mm-hmm. and then that affects your BMI or you're able to to cook and that affects your diet and your cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So it's not always, cl- it was not entirely, I mean, they didn't talk about which pathway necessarily yeah. was changing by changing the work schedule that was then affecting these results. And that would be a follow-up that I'd be interested to see. Kind of was it that people changed the orientation of their activities in their day right. or that it was just stress, like it was reduction in stress that then led to these other things. I think we should pivot because yep. we've had a great conversation on this article. For our segment two, we're talking about mental health in a different way. And this was an editorial in PLOS Medicine by Louise Gaynor Brook with the Public Library of Science in San Francisco. And the title here is Towards Mental Health as a Human Right, the Key Role of Lived Experience. And the author of this piece, this is a short commentary piece, is talking about the intersection of mental health with many chronic and infectious disease endpoints that are very central, that are viewed as very central to human rights and making the case that mental health should be considered alongside these other very central themes. And and to note also, this piece seems to be launching a new journal in yeah. the PLOS mm-hmm. juggernaut of it, journals, this, this PLOS mental health. For, I, we just need to stop and comment on that. The, the proliferation <laughs> of journals, <laughs> like there is now a journal for everything, even like within the under the auspices of, say, PLOS Medicine has their brand of journals, and then Lancet has right. their mm-hmm. – there's like a journal for everything. So I'm waiting for the International Journal of, of Matt Fox so that I can publish <laughs> everything directly. Everything you've ever thought in yep. one, in one peer-reviewed. Right but I think one of the interesting things here was just the linkage to human rights, which maybe is a, a less common theme focused in the mental health space. So, mm-hmm. Amrita, what were your thoughts on this? you want to jump in? Yeah, sure. So I thought that this was a really interesting compilation of a lot of different mental health components that 
I've been thinking about and I know that others have been thinking about as well. I really appreciated the perspective that we don't think of mental health in isolation. We kind of consider it as one of the contextual factors that in combination with adverse physical health can lead to overall reductions in well-being. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is mental health has not traditionally been incorporated into some of the different considerations that we've had around environmental exposure and health impacts, around structural determinants of health, social determinants of health. And so I think that the the thing that I really appreciated is focusing on mental health as a human right, I think brings mental health into the forefront in a way that it hasn't been traditionally considered. And I think alerts everyone to the need for consideration of mental health outcomes alongside physical health outcomes as part of a more holistic picture of the public health and the public good. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I am curious what you all think about the idea of naming something to be a human right. Mm -hmm. Because I I mean, certainly, like many things can be declared a human right, you have the right to health in general, mental health specifically, you have the right to housing and and security and things like that. But, you know, those are ideas, right? Unless that doesn't mean we can necessarily guarantee those things for everyone. So I'm just curious what the, what you think the value is in declaring something a human right? I agree with you that I think, you know, in declaring something a human right, it certainly doesn't mean that we have any way of enforcing that everyone has access to, whether it's a human right to clean air or clean water or or good schools or whatever it is. There's no way of mandating that in the context, like like in a, you know, right to free speech, kind of in like Mm -hmm. a a rights-based structure from a legal or policy framework. I think it just elevates the universality of Mm -hmm. the challenge of of the idea. And it it makes it aspirational, right? right? I think that elevating it to the status of a human right, even if it's just a theoretical concept, makes it an aspirational goal towards which we can be working as part of the, you know, effort in practice of public health. And it sets up the need for universal metrics, which in the mental health space is, is, is not, is, is challenging in terms of how do you measure mental health? How could you do that in a way that's comparable and rigorous and broadly, you know, kind of broadly reliant across different populations. Yeah, I guess my 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 thought on that though is is it is it something that's achievable? Because, you know, you can you could say a basic income is a human right. Mm-hmm. And that would have implications that are pretty clear. Mm-hmm. We'd have to figure out what we consider to be a basic income and we would figure out how we're going to guarantee that everybody gets that mm-hmm. access to that. Mental health or health in general are not the same. We cannot guarantee somebody's well, you know, physical or mental well-being. We can, we could mandate, you know, people have access to uh, health care. They can mandate they have access to services. I'm, so I'm saying like even, even moving away from the, the theoretical to the, moving away from the practical to the theoretical, it isn't even totally clear to me what exactly that human right means in the context of something that we cannot as a, as a species guarantee. Well, I think that there's, you know, maybe there's two different things that I would say. The first is that in some of the other items that you are mentioning, the the metric comes on. So the metric is not on the individual side, I think. The metric of, you know, free speech or some of these other things that we think of as basic human rights, there's like a kind of an external measure of it. Whereas I think one of the difficulties with something like health or mental health specifically is that it is such an individual level measure because 
person to person, there may be a very different conceptualization of what Mm -hmm. well-being or uh, good mental health really means. But I think that maybe extrapolating away from the particular, like, how do we concretely measure it? One of the things that I think we benefit from in explicitly calling out mental health in this context is that there's been so much stigma around the idea of mental health and seeking out access to resources or care. And so I think in providing this framework of, no, everyone is entitled to good mental health, what we're doing maybe is allowing people to say, I don't currently have that and I need to go and get the resources that will enable me to be healthier, to be healthier mentally, to have better holistic well-being. Mm -hmm. And I think that in and of itself is an important goal, even if we don't, at the end of the day, know how to accurately characterize or quantify what good mental health is. I, I don't know that we necessarily need that. I think what we need is for people to understand in their own circumstance, this is how I'm currently feeling or how my mental health is currently. And also I know because there is now this idea just broadly in society that everyone deserves to have good mental health, that I can go and seek out the access to the resources that I need without feeling like there's some sort of stigma attached to that. I agree with that. And I also would just add that I think it's a systemic Mm -hmm. issue as well, kind of. And so elevating something to a human right would then imply that healthcare providers or Mm -hmm. health insurance organizations would need to provide services or provide screening or just an increased awareness that if Mm -hmm. this is something on par with diabetes and cardiovascular disease and HIV in terms of big picture diseases that we think about globally, you know, that, that the, that providers and health systems need to be aware of, of mental health more than they are right now. Yeah. So, so let me then say, couldn't, couldn't we achieve that same goal by simply saying, we're going to focus on that particular issue or we're going to, we're going to say, you know, like, so in the world of HIV, you know, going back many years, we, we were, you know, there was no access to HIV treatment in most of the world. And then we made this commitment and, you know, they started setting these targets of we're going to get X million on treatment by X period of time. And, you know, those goals, you sort of looked at them and you said, like, there's no way you can achieve this. But if you don't set a goal and you don't actually monitor progress, then you're not going to get anywhere. So fine. So you have these targets that may not be perfectly achievable. So couldn't we? Could, wouldn't doing the the that same thing for say mental health and saying, you know, we're going to have some target that everyone is going to meet this this you know every country is going to get to this level of mental. I don't I you know I don't know how we do it. Have the same I same same benefit of focusing the attention and moving people in a direction as opposed to saying something is a, is a human right, which I'm, I'm, I'm not at all, I'm not disagreeing with this. I'm just trying to say, like, I'm trying to understand what the benefit is of declaring something a human right, as opposed to just saying, this is going to be our health focus and we are going to target, you know, we're going to create targets and we are going to hold people accountable to getting towards these targets. Right. I mean, my sense of why, I mean, the author could have chosen a number of justifications mm-hmm. for elevating mental health to the status of it's going to be its own PLOS journal, right? I think they could have chosen, you know, this author could have chosen multiple rationales for making that case. And I think the human right issue touches on the global construct. Mm -hmm. And so kind of leads back, I think, to the comment that Amruta made that there is stigma and there is certain, there's certain inequality and inequity in terms of how mental health is assessed and treated globally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, of this is a global concern, it's a human right. It, you know, that it kind of elevates to that level. 
I, I think it was more of a theoretical argument than, you know, maybe yeah. we can't. And from a mental health perspective, there's no clear metric that we could say, we're going to bring everyone above a 10 mm -hmm. <laughs> in this score. And we're going to commit to that because there's no universal metric yeah. and th I, that exists. And so maybe that's kind of a call for that process. And I just want to say, I know we've, we've been focusing in this segment really heavily on the first part. Mm -hmm. which yep. is mental health as a human right. Yep. But I just want to take a moment to pivot to the second part, which is the role that lived experience plays. And I think this is another important component of the journal, of the overall framework, which is that there's been a lot of discussion in the last couple of years, especially around diversity of opinions within you know, publications, within our fields, within the discipline of public health. And I think this is also a means of elevating mental health to the forefront as, you know, people with lived experience around mental health can provide perspectives on all of the different components that are listed from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So maybe the ways in which we provide access to the standard of living, you know, for example, they talk about food, clothing, housing, medical care, these issues that you've mentioned, bringing in people with lived experience around mental health and around some of the different, you know, adverse mental health outcomes, bringing those perspectives into these discussions for these other components of universal human rights, I think is also an, a really key part of what the author is advocating for. And I think that probably translates into, you know, having scientists who participate in research discussions and in these really important fora who also have that lived experience that they can bring with them to the table. So I just wanted to mention that as a key component of this. Yeah. And if I, if, if I could just connect that back just for a second to what we were talking about before, which is the, the justification that I have heard for declaring something a human right is it doesn't declaring something a human right doesn't make it immediately available and guaranteed mm -hmm. to everyone. But what it does is it provides a legal framework for say like when you know things come up and, and and laws are being made and they come to the courts that the courts can now use that as a a metric by which they are evaluating the progress not necessarily that, that you have you have done it but they can say look that you have to attend to this and so then get it coming back to your point so then how do you then go about doing that you bring in the perspectives of, of people who are who have experienced this and and understand it you bring in those who have expertise in in the the treatment side of things and you, you know, you bring in what's, you know, feasible and acceptable and all of those things to, to develop approaches, systems, programs, therapies, whatever it is, medications mm -hmm. that, that help move towards that. And you've got a legal framework to move you in that direction. So, yeah. Interesting stuff. I mean, I would, I would just conclude with the one comment pulling on Amruta's section, a comment a minute ago, there was the quote towards the end, the nothing about us without us, which is the classic call for community-based participatory mm -hmm. research, which is obviously very different than the style of research that's typically published in the PLOS journals, mm -hmm. typically published in our biomedical journals more generally. And so that was an, that was an interesting an interesting tidbit, mm -hmm. kind of wondering, was this journal in fact pushing towards more community-based engagement upstream in the research process focused on this topic. So anyway, cool discussion. Thank you both. Let's pivot to amazing and amusing. And Matt, what do you have? You want to okay, go first? Okay, so I'm going to go right back to where we started. Okay. As I said, which summer camp you get into determines your <laughs> entire future. That, of course, is a joke. But this this article that I came across that I found fascinating is back from back in May. It was a 
came out on ProPublica's webpage reporting on something that they had been looking into, which is this idea. So so when kids are in the United States who have access to lots of, of resources, are preparing for applying to college, they want to build up their their CV, their resume to make it look like they are the most outstanding, amazing, you know, kid out there. And this, you know, XYZ school should choose them. And so kids do things like, you know, leadership activities, all good stuff, you know, sports, good stuff. But then they also do things like getting, you know, get coaching and how to, you know, present their, you know, to engage in things that will help them or coaching and how to do the, uh, write their essays or coaching and how to take the standardized tests and all those things that if you have more money, you can then do things. Relating it all back to our field, apparently there are now, and I didn't know this, there are now services who you can pay people to get your kids a published, your high school student, a published paper wow. that they can now put onto their their CV. Wow. These things are like, you know, thousands of dollars, as you would expect, mm-hmm. because, of course, the the fees that we pay to publish, publish our articles, open access, they're in the thousands of dollars. So these are services that then work with journals to get, you know, these kids published. But the problem, of course, is that very little of it is actual good, useful, yeah. important research. And it ends up just sort of flooding. I mean, as we know, even those of us with degrees in this can often produce not particularly important or well done <laughs> research. Now you're going down to the level of high school. And they were saying like there, there are Obviously, there are some high school students who do brilliant things and should be published, mm-hmm. and most of them shouldn't. And if the metric is, I have money to pay for it, mm-hmm. we have a really broken system. So I just I thought it was fascinating to learn that that is true. I'm not in any way trying to suggest that this is like a, a really common practice, but just knowing that it's out there, that there are, you know, whenever there is a system to be gamed, those with with resources are going to try and, and, and get benefits for their kids. And it's just, I don't know, it's worrying. It's crazy. I mean, the, yeah. and the schools kind of lean into that also, you know, like our university and others, they have these programs for high school students to be doing, you know, and they promote it along that, like kind of get engaged with high impact research and famous professors. And then often, you know, the professor's don't know exactly what to do with them because they're like 15 and 16 and right. it's hard to know exactly how to engage these students. But they, they pay $10,000, $15,000 for these summer experiences. They, they pay. The students pay, the, the students families pay. pay for these oh, experiences wow, in academia. Shocking. And it's not always clear like what they can contribute. They need a lot of mentorship when they're in high school to be able, it's like you're looking at a lab, for example, yeah. like you, you know, you need a lot of, a lot of training and, and mentorship to be able to really jump in and do high impact stuff. Yeah. But I've always, I, I see some of these programs and I feel like there's a discrepancy between what they promise the kids and then what the kids can actually do. For sure. Yeah. And I experienced that. I mean, my first experience working in the lab was when I was 14, you know, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school. And I think it actually had a really huge impact on my career trajectory, being able to go work in a lab, understand what that experience would be like. So there is something valuable to be in a positive for the students. In a negative way. Right. Right. But I think, I think, you know, the perspective entirely depends. It, for me, the motivation behind that wasn't that I was trying to get into college. It was that I was interested in gaining this new experience. And And I think that, so I think we need to start differentiating between, you know, I'm doing this on paper so that I can get into a good college because that's what I think I need for my future career trajectory versus I'm actually substantively interested in this topic and I want to contribute. And, you know, I've, I've seen both 
of these like different pathways of students coming through. And I think it's, it makes a really big difference for their experience, for the experience on the other side. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's really troublesome if it's just a pay to play situation. Exactly. Right. So, and just to, to emphasize, I, I actually think those situations that you just described and you described as well, those are sort of two different things, whether you're like paying for an experience versus you're just getting an experience. The experience is fantastic. Like if you were in a real, you know, lab experience, mm-hmm. but these, these are things like, you know, working with, with Chick-fil-A to write a, you know, effectively uh, a marketing oh. piece for them. You know, yeah. that's not what we're looking that's for. Not, yeah. Getting experience, I'm all in favor of. <laughs> crazy, yep. crazy. Yep. Amruta, what about you? Yeah. So I, over the course of the last year, I feel like this has been the year of Taylor Swift, the number, (laughs) the decade maybe of Taylor Swift. And I've had so many conversations in places where the topic of conversation wouldn't naturally go to Taylor Swift, (laughs) but somehow it ends up there, including the fact that we were driving down to my college reunion back in May for my 15th reunion. And we ended up getting stuck in Taylor Swift concert traffic south of the GW bridge. So it has had a really like day-to-day level impact on me for the at least the last six months, if not longer. And so it seems really appropriate that Taylor Swift has been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. And so, you know, the conversations around that, I think, you know, in addition to the way that this has been a topic of conversation across the course of this year, I think just the marketing around all of the different concerts that she's been doing and you know, there's some people who credit her with keeping up our economy this year. And like, so I think there's just a large range of discussion around Taylor Swift. And so I thought that was really interesting. I think it came out today. That's super interesting. Do, do you yeah. think that Taylor Swift is the greatest pop star of all time? I don't know how you define greatest, but like when I think of like, like growing up, Michael Jackson went in my jet was the, was the greatest pop star, but I kind of feel like I put those two together. And just if I think about like the, the, you know, it's, we're, we live in a very different world. So your mm-hmm. ability to mass market and communicate and then whatever, but it just seems to me like we talked about Michael Jackson a lot when I was mm-hmm. a kid, but I like Taylor Swift is everywhere. It's mm-hmm. as you say, like it's in every conversation it feels like. And I cannot turn on a football game now without right. having to. Right. Well, now she's crossing over. Personally, yeah. personally annoys me. But, uh, resuscitating other, other careers. Wait a minute. No. Not, no. The not, not resuscitating. <laughs> Talk to any Taylor Swift fan. I, I guarantee know, you they I will know. disagree with At least this is a true. different demographic, yeah, right? Exactly. You weren't having teen girls tuning into a lot of the yeah. games before, but now they are just to try to get a glimpse of Taylor. Yeah in the box but mm-hmm. no I mean I have a 13 year old daughter and she's obsessed with mm-hmm. Taylor Swift and what's interesting about Taylor Swift to me at least is I think one of her appeals to my daughter is that she has this this kind of persona of survival mm-hmm. like she's kind sure. of been through hard times and like mm-hmm. you know Kanye mocked her at the Grammys and she came back even stronger and she has like and her music kind of reflects this this like fairly cohesive narrative of survival Mm -hmm. in difficult circumstances, even though I don't, you know, she's got billions of dollars. Obviously she's not like really living in difficult circumstances, but like there's something about her that, that teens relate too. Yeah. Like I see that's right. And it's not, it's not her music. Like it's not just the music. It's like, although the music is, the music is a part of it, but I think it's like also just her whole Persona, yeah. which is Sorry, really interesting. They're what? Oh, what my what my savvier younger cousins say is that they're bops. They're bops. Yeah, yes. they're good. Yep. They're good songs. They slap. You can bop they your head. Slap. You can bop your head around yep. to the music. Yep. Yeah, for sure. 
On that note, we can bop over to my most, this is, this is a random amazing and amusing, but I, I, I chose it because Amrita was here today and it's a, it's an unusual theme. So this was, this was an article that I just pulled about a group of researchers in Nova Scotia who said, you know, who are focused on, on fish survival Mm. And yep. in in river water, because river water is apparently increasing in temperature dramatically, mm-hmm. especially in smaller mm-hmm. rivers. And this is causing, you know, species die offs and declines. Mm-hmm. And the water's too hot for a lot of these fish species to migrate and survive. And so these researchers said, what about creating an air conditioning system? A fish conditioning system. A fish air conditioning system (laughs) for the fish. Wait, but but is it air? It's not air. It's it's not air. It's actually cold water. Water conditioning. Water conditioning. They were calling it air conditioning, but water water conditioning. So what they what they did is they dug into the groundwater aquifer where the water is cold, and they pumped the water from the aquifer into the river, (laughs) into kind of you know defined areas, and then they said like, what's going to happen to the fish? And the fish flocked to these cooler areas of water to the extent that they weren't like migrating so much as they were just hanging out. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they were on these migratory paths. And first it was the young fish. And as the temperature, the external temperature and the external, like the ambient river water temperature increased, even the older fish who maybe were like seen it all, done it all, <laughs> even like they came over to the AC and were just like basking in the AC. And, and so in reading this, I was like, what's the public health perspective here? Because, you know, you think about climate change and adaptation and mitigation and like from a hierarchy of controls perspective. And it seems like providing air conditioning to fish is the very bottom <laughs> of a hierarchy <laughs> control. It's like everything else has failed to get to that circumstance. Maybe the last thing would be they'd put like an ice pack on an individual mm-hmm. fish. Oh. Like mm-hmm. they'd like strap it with like a little okay. ice suit. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. But I was interested because this apparently seems to be a whole line of climate mitigation type research of Mm. altering, cooling the environment for animals. Yeah. And I was wondering what your take is on that. Being at the lower end of the, you know, where your research is kind of more focused, a little maybe higher on the hierarchy (laughs) of controls of kind of systemic issues. Yeah, but I think it's an interesting, so there are a couple of things that I would say that are really interesting about this. So the first one is that this is one of the things that I would characterize as like a Band-Aid solution, right? From public health very much, it seems that way. Exactly. So- like instead of trying to mitigate the circumstances under which these surface water bodies are becoming too hot for survival, we're pumping up groundwater from aquifers in order to cool off surface water, mm-hmm. which has a little bit of a problematic component in and of itself because we don't really know what's in the aquifer, right? Or right. we don't know what's in the what what the composition is of the surface water. And those two things can be very, very different. No, but if we surveyed the fish, I think they would say they liked it. <laughs> They probably would say they liked it. We did community-based participatory research with the fish. Fish community (laughs) participatory research, yeah. But I think I just think it's really interesting because this is a classic mitigation versus adaptation Mm. discussion that happens, right? Like, do we go ahead, do we assume that the water is going to be hotter and provide fish with the capabilities to survive in the hotter water or do we try to fix the hot water right, right? this is a very classic discussion it's like they need like the little first aid cabinet yeah with the, what is it called the 
the defibrillator for the yeah, fish. Yeah, yeah, teach them exactly. how to use it when yeah. they start to have heart attacks because the water's too hot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, this is really they, getting to be band-aid to me. In, in <laughs> That's small. Waterproof? I don't know. They have I the little know. mini ones. That's oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But fish, like guppies, I'm thinking. I don't think, uh, yeah, do I, don't, I don't think guppy so. I don't think we have guppy to use their fins to Yeah, that's going to be hard. I mean, this is like really far down in the head. Like this is like really into band-aid stuff. But there's... I, I was. It was interesting to me that there's like a whole. This is a whole yeah. field now. Yeah. Kind of. And you know. I guess you could conceptualize this happening across all of the different right. animal species that we want to preserve and protect. Like we would have to come up with a bespoke version right. for each of the. Different. Oh, like air conditioners for bees. Air conditioners mm. for bees, right? Or like air filters for bees. Like put them in like a yeah. little N95. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. They're hard to get. Do they have ears? Ears. I don't know. Maybe you need the ones that go around the back of your head. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah and you yeah. like put them over the wings. Right. That's the straps what you over do. the wings. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. We're 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 devolving quickly here. <laughs> That's but what we do. What can yeah. I say? That's the end of our program. Thank you so much for joining us. We want to thank Nick Guler at BUSPH for sound and producing and editing. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you download our next episode. <laughs>